What are the big things that we know cause depression? Stress is right at the top of the Absolutely. list. Absolutely. Yeah, it's huge. There's no getting around that. Stress is probably the single biggest risk factor for depression that we know about. Hi, my name is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, medical doctor, author of The Four Pillar Plan and television presenter. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people, both within as well as outside the health space, to hopefully inspire you, as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier, because when we feel better, we live more. Hello and welcome to another episode of my Feel Better, Live More podcast. My name is Rongan Chatterjee and I am your host. In today's conversation, I dive deep into the subject area of depression with none other than Professor Edward Bullmore, who has written an absolutely fantastic, I'd go as far as saying a game-changing book, The Inflamed Minds, A Radical New Approach to Depression. I'm utterly obsessed with this book at the moment. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Professor Bullmore is a professor of psychiatry at the University of Cambridge and is someone who is really shaking things up in the medical profession in terms of how we evaluate and treat depression. Today's episode is possibly a little bit different from most of my previous episodes in that there is possibly less in the way of actionable tips that you can apply in your everyday life but there is plenty of take-home information here about depression. Remember, one in four people in the UK will have a mental health problem in any given year. So this is something that will affect or touch most of our lives, either directly or indirectly. I'm delighted to have Professor Bullmore here as my guest today, and I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Before we get started, just a quick announcement about Athletic Greens, who are the sponsors of today's show. For me, the right nutrition is an essential ingredient to having a healthy and happy life. And whilst I absolutely prefer people to get their nutrition from eating foods, I recognize that for some of us, that can be a little bit challenging. Many of us are rushing around, trying to meet competing demands. Often we get home late, And even with the best intentions on some days, it can be a little bit tricky to cook a wholesome, nutritious meal. If you want to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend Athletic Greens. It is a really tasty whole food greens powder that you can take each morning. And unlike most green supplements that I've tried in the past, it tastes absolutely fantastic. It is so much more than a green supplement. It includes vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, and digestive enzymes. Many of you have been in touch on social media to let me know that your energy has improved significantly since starting to take it each morning. For listeners of this podcast, if you go to www.athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you can access a special offer where you get a free travel pack box containing 20 servings of Athletic Greens, which is worth around £70 with your first order. So do go and check it out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. Now, on to today's conversation. 
We've been trying to set this up for a few months now. I'm delighted we've actually, you know, managed to steal some of your time to talk about uh, your work and in particular your book, which has been out for a few months now. When you're really sort of really making the case that perhaps what we thought caused depression wasn't the case, or perhaps we need to modify our understanding of depression. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think it's fair to say that we should think a little bit more broadly about depression in terms of possible causes. And I think one thing that's really, I've really tried to sort of ram home in the book is that depression isn't going to be all one thing. You know, it's not like everybody with depression is depressed for the same reason and therefore equally likely to respond to the same few treatments. And if you think about what happens to somebody with depression in the NHS today, somebody comes to see you in your surgery and you refer them on to a psychiatrist, say, what's going to happen? They're probably going to get offered uh, treatment with one of a few drugs, like you know, serotonin-tweaking drugs like Prozac, or maybe they'll be offered a course of psychotherapy. Um, but there are rather limited options, and we don't have any very good way at the moment of predicting which patients are going to respond to which of those treatments. Uh, I think we ought to imagine that Actually, there are many different causes for depression. If we could get a bit better at identifying the root cause of depression in each individual patient, we might be more effective in terms of treatment because we might be able to target treatment uh, in a more personalised way for an individual patient. So it's focused on the cause of depression in their case. Yeah, so your book really goes into what some of these causes might be, uh, some of the latest research. But one thing that struck me early on in the book, I think, was when you... We're talking about your, your your experience as a psychiatrist seeing patients, and you, please correct me if I've got this slightly wrong, but I, I seem to recall uh, quite early on you were talking about you, know, you were seeing a patient and you were being told all the guidelines were to prescribe uh, an SSRI, um, a, a medication designed to raise levels of serotonin in the brain. But you were thinking, well, I don't know if my patient's got low serotonin or not, so I don't really know if if, if he or she needs that treatment. Yeah. Actually, it was the patient that put me straight on this. I was, taught, I was the patient came and said to me, you know, I'm depressed. Um, and I said, uh, well, let me, let me give you this uh, antidepressant drug. And he said, well, what is it? And I said, it's an SSRI. It's going to boost your serotonin levels. And I started kind of repeating all the stuff I was just learning then in the textbooks of psychiatry. <laughs> yeah. um, and he stopped me and he said, well, look, how do you how do you know that's true of me? How do you know that the serotonin levels in my brain are low and are going to need boosting by this drug? And that was a real sort of epiphany in a way, because I realised I didn't know the answer to that question. I and what's more, there was no way of finding out what the levels of serotonin were in his brain. Um, and we we looked at each other. I think we both realised that you know he he. Um, You've got a point. You've got a, point, <laughs> a very good point. Um, but we carried on in the usual sort of polite way. He left with a prescription and, you know, I arranged to see him in a couple of weeks. But it left me thinking, you know, what is the rationale for treatment in an individual with depression? And couldn't we do a better job of, you know, developing tests, blood tests, or some other investigation that you could use to show whether the drug that you were offering or the intervention more generally that you were offering was really right for that individual patient. Yeah, I mean, depression and I guess all mental health problems are on the rise at the moment. Um, I don't know what the current rates are. I think I think the Mind charity say that one in four people in the UK in any given year will 
be diagnosed with either depression or a mental health problem, which yeah. I found a staggeringly high statistic. Do you know what the, the current stats are? Well, I think it's one. I think people say it's on what you've got a one in four lifetime risk, right, of depression. Um, so way, quite a lot, isn't yeah, it? The way I think about it is, there's no family in the country that's going to be untouched no. by depression. I mean, it might not be you, but it, you know, you'd be a very lucky family if there wasn't somebody, you know, a niece, uh, a grandmother, somebody in the family tree who uh, had been impacted by depression. It's tremendously common, and I think, you know, another thing that I hope the book kind of does a little bit is to break down this idea that of us and them you know the idea that we, we i think we sometimes have that people with mental illness they're very weird they're very different from us they should be kind of segregated and kept apart really that flies in the face of the epidemiological evidence this yeah. is you know extremely common very common um, indeed yeah, yeah. i think it would be useful to try and define a few things right at the start of this conversation i mean you know everyone feels a bit low sometimes, um, but that's not quite what depression is, is it? I mean, what's, how would you define depression? Well, depression has a formal definition, you know, it's a, uh, and that's written up in a diagnostic manual called DSM-5, uh, for example. And there's a checklist of symptoms there. So, you know, low mood is obviously part of it, sleep disturbance, guilt, um, loss of pleasure, uh, thinking about harming yourself um, or putting an end to your life. Uh, those are some of the uh, symptoms of depression. And to have a diagnosis of major depressive disorder, you have to tick off some of those symptom boxes and, and there has to be a certain kind of consistency to the symptoms and severity of the symptoms. So you're right that there is a difference uh, between you know the day-to-day -day experience of feeling you know a bit blue sometimes sure and the what you might call the, the more severe end of it the clinical depression that uh, psychiatrists would would diagnose as a major depressive disorder and your book is primarily based around depression or other mental health problems as well so i think at the end you talk about schizophrenia as well yeah. so my, the book is mainly focused on depression but uh, i think one one thing that uh, again i try and touch on here is that there are people whose main diagnosis, the main reason for seeing a doctor, is that they have low mood and they have other symptoms of depression. They have major depressive disorder. There are also a lot of people out there whose main problem they wouldn't think of as psychiatric. Their main problem might be that they've got arthritis, they've got uh, inflammatory bowel disease, they've got psoriasis, they've got one of many, many inflammatory disorders of the body. And a lot of those people have psychological symptoms. So if you ask patients with rheumatoid arthritis, for example, what's the main problem that you face in day-to-day -day living? Most surveys will put depression, fatigue, something called brain fog, which is like a difficulty in sort of thinking clearly and planning ahead. Most patients with arthritis will put those psychological symptoms right at the top of their list of things that they'd like to fix to help them live a more complete life. So I think when we're thinking about depression, from a sort of medical psychiatric point of view, it's quite important to realise, I think, that there, this affects not just the patients that might be seeing a psychiatrist, but also a lot of patients that are seeing a physician or a GP for a, for a, you know, a, a bodily disorder that has these psychological yeah. symptoms. And that's a great point, and I guess really fits in nicely with the topic of a lot of what's in your book, this whole idea that inflammation may be the root cause of some cases of depression, yeah. or certainly more than we thought. Yeah. And 
I automatically think of that rheumatoid arthritis patient you're talking about who is inflamed and will probably have a high level of a marker in the blood that you know we measure as doctors CRP, which is a marker of inflammation. And you know the research that you you sort of go through and, and walk us through in the book about inflammation and its impacts on depression, its possible impacts on depression, it would kind of make sense, wouldn't it, that in in an autoimmune disease such as rheumatoid arthritis where you are inflamed, mm-hmm. if inflammation causes depression, well, of course, you may well be inflamed then with rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, you may well be depressed if you've yes. got rheumatoid arthritis. Yes, yes. and in the book, I tell a story about another patient, uh, I call her Mrs. P, who uh, also opened my eyes a little bit. And she was a, a woman with arthritis, and I saw her in a medical outpatient clinic before I started specialising in psychiatry. But because I was interested in psychiatry, I did ask her questions that perhaps most um, physicians wouldn't have yeah, asked sure. her. I didn't just talk about her joint pain. I also asked her about her state of mind, and she very quietly, fluently came out with all the symptoms of depression. I realised she was pretty severely depressed. And I went to see my consultant, um, feeling quite pleased with myself because I'd made this additional diagnosis. And he said, um, depressed? Well, you would be, wouldn't you? And that was kind of the end of the conversation. And the, his thinking, un, you know, coded in that rather kind of succinct, cryptic way was, you know, Mrs. P, she's got chronic joint disease and, you know, her mobility is poor. You know, her prognosis is not great. Maybe in five years... She's going to need mobility aids, a wheelchair or something to get around. If that was your future, you'd be depressed, wouldn't you? Just by thinking about it. And that is the way I think that a lot of this so-called comorbid depression has been kind of, I would say, discounted medically over the years. We've told ourselves that this isn't really part of the physical illness. It's It's something to do with the way... But it's all in the mind. It's all in the mind. It's the way the patient right. is thinking about their condition. And I, th- I I think that's difficult for a lot of patients to deal with because it's like saying you've got a, you're, you've got a bodily disease, you've got an, a joint problem, and the fact that you're also really struggling to get out of bed in the morning because you have so little energy or you're feeling very gloomy about the future, that's kind of, you know, your fault. It's a sort of... You're not strong enough you to deal with. You haven't got the moral fibre yeah. to deal with the challenges that your disease presents. And that's, you know, who wants to hear that when they go yeah. to see the doctor? So, you know, I don't think that's a very helpful way of thinking about it. And the there is an alternative way, which I've outlined in the book, which is, and you've already said this, that maybe we could think, well, actually, if you've got an autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis, the whole immune system is going to be um, deranged. Right, um, the, and whatever, yeah. yeah. There are going to be inflammatory proteins, inflammatory cells in circulation, those signals could get across the blood-brain barrier. They could change the way the brain works, and that could directly cause symptoms of energy loss, low mood, and so on. So maybe we should be thinking about the kind of symptoms that Mrs. P was telling me about. Maybe they're not kind of all in the mind. Maybe they are another aspect of her autoimmune problem. We should be thinking about them in the same kind of way as we think about you know, her joint pain or some of the other more familiar physical symptoms. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I think, certainly if I think back to when I was at medical school and even in my early years practicing, um, you know, I think we very much did think depression was all in the mind. And you you, you present a very beautiful case of how 
it may well not be the case. Well, I'm sort of softening it that it's not the case that actually it may also be a disease or a, or a, or a problem of the body as well that's maybe having symptoms in the mind. Yes. And I wonder if you could just talk me through that. You know, you know what have you what have you found um, through your research that's different from the way you were trained? Yeah. Well, I, so I, I guess I should say first of all that um, the the research I'm talking about in the book is not by no means not all my research. I've really drawn on, a, you know, there's a body of work there that's been growing over the last, you know, 25 years, I would say. But particularly in the last five, 10 years, there's really been an inflection yeah, point. And we're seeing, up, yeah, we're seeing new, a lot of new evidence. I think the, you know, the way I think about it is, first of all, it, is there an association between depression and inflammation? Do those two things go together? And, you know, yes, they do. There's lots of evidence for that. You know, I've already mentioned that people with inflammatory disorders have increased risks of depression. So that's one aspect of that association. You can also look at um, blood uh, inflammatory markers. You mentioned CRP. We can also look at inflammatory proteins called cytokines in patients who have major depressive disorder. So that's the kind of psychiatric flavor of depression. Um, they turn out to have slightly but significantly increased levels of inflammatory proteins in circulation on average. So again, that's evidence for an association. But if you take that uh, back to sort of more skeptically minded scientists or clinicians, they will say, well, you know, association or correlation, it's not causation. Sure. And for us to get serious about this, we have to have evidence that inflammation isn't just a kind of uh, a passenger. It's not just a coincidental finding in, in somebody who's depressed. It's really the cause of their depression. So that that gets you into the kind of next level of scientific investigation, which is trying to build the evidence for a causal effect. Now, you can look in animals and you can look in humans. If you look in animals, obviously, you've got much more opportunity experimentally to make animals inflamed, make perfectly healthy animals inflamed and see what difference it makes to their behavior. And it turns out that very, very robustly, if you make an animal inflamed, it it becomes less mobile, it kind of withdraws from contact with other animals, it may be less um, interested in things like sugary liquids that it would normally enjoy drinking, presumably because they're more pleasurable. So you can see these kind of behavioral changes in animals that look a lot like some of the symptoms of human depression, and they're directly caused by inflammation. Then some pe people would say, well, you know, how can you possibly have a, you know, a, a credible animal model for the distinctly human experience of, of mm -hmm. being depressed, feeling gloomy, guilty, and so on? So we do need human evidence as well. And there are various places you can look for that. And the first place that I think the, the case has been made is, you know, if inflammation caused depression, then inflammation should sometimes come before depression. You know, mm. it causes proceed effects. So is there any evidence that we can find uh, in humans that inflammation has come before people were depressed? And there are a couple of big studies that have shown that that is the case. Was there not one you talked about in the book about nine-year-olds? Yes. That, 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 I found that staggering. I yes. wonder if you could just elaborate on yes. that. I found so it that would, well, yeah, I think that is a very provocative finding. So that was a big uh, epidemiological study that was done in New Zealand. It's called the Dunedin study. 
And basically, they followed up a birth cohort. So they basically identified everybody that had been born in the city of Dunedin in a, in, in a couple of years. And they followed those originally babies. They followed them up repeatedly over time. And what they discovered when they looked back at the data was that the children that had had slightly increased levels of inflammation uh, in uh, childhood, sorry, the, the children, I'm sorry, I'm misspoken there. What That's they found fine. was the children who had experienced abuse or adversity in childhood had slightly increased levels of inflammation and depression in adulthood. So that's a study that actually makes a slightly different point, sure. which is about where inflammation might come from in people who are depressed and the possible importance of stress, mm. particularly childhood stress. But there are, I think you might I think I might have misunderstood the study you were alluding to actually. There's another study, uh, also a very large long long term follow up study, where they measured um the inflammation in the blood at the age of nine, I think it was, in children who were later assessed for depression at the age of 18. And they found that the kids who had been sort of in the top third of the levels of inflammation, for inflammation yeah. in, at the age of nine had a significantly increased risk yeah, this, of depression. That was a study I, I remember reading and thinking, wow, so yep. you know, many years before they actually get depression symptoms, potentially... Yep. There were, there were signs of increased inflammation, That's right. which, is, That's right. which helps to make the case, doesn't it, that inflammation is potentially can precede yes, depression exactly. and therefore might be caused. Yes, yes. And people, there have been other studies that have made the same point, and that's you know a bit of work that we published recently in, I think it was 60-year-olds. Uh, we found that women particularly who had high levels of this inflammatory marker CRP um, four and two years before they became uh, were assessed for depression had an increased risk of depression uh, up to four years later. Wow. So that's encouraging. You know, it tells us that it, inflammation can precede depression, which is what it would have to do if it was going to be causal. But still, you know, people are sceptical and people will want to say, well, okay, it could cause... You've, you've, these longitudinal data, they tell us... Uh, inflammation could cause depression, but how exactly, step by step, does that work? Uh, how do you have an how does an inflammatory protein in the blood lead to somebody feeling gloomy? Um, and that's where you've got to, you know, I think the new science of neuroimmunology generally has been quite helpful. Uh, because when I was at medical school, I don't know if this is true when you were at medical school, when I was at medical school, uh, I was told as a matter of fact that, you know, the brain was protected from the immune system. Yeah, me too. It had nothing to do with the immune system. I was taught it was immune privileged. Absolutely, and, and I remember the, that saying yeah, very well. Yeah. yeah, and there was supposedly, you know, the blood-brain barrier. Uh, Keep the brain apart, separate. The body can do what it wants, but the brain's protected. That's right. I was taught the, you know, the blood-brain barrier was like a Berlin Wall in my imagination. It was an absolutely sort of impermeable barrier that protected the brain from the, the peripheral immune system in the body. But, but I think, uh, sorry, Professor, I think there's, there's kind of a wider point there, isn't there, which I would say in general, even some of those anecdotes you talk about earlier on, on in your career, how, um, you know, before you specialise in psychiatry, you're talking to someone with arthritis mm. and, you know, because you're that way inclined, you mm. spoke to them about their mental health and realised actually there are some, you know, some symptoms of depression here. Mm. Um it, you know, but they're they're probably in their arthritis clinic yeah. and they're seeing an arthritis doctor. Yeah. 
I think on some level that's really how how reductionist we have become in medicine over the last what 20 30 years to a certain degree we are we have become quite reductionist and I I understand for the scientific method to kind of tease out causation and tease out what is causing what that reductionism can you know can be beneficial but then when you translate that to clinical practice I sometimes feel that we have overly specialized and overly you know we're trying to treat a lot of these things as separate conditions but I, I guess there is potentially the case here that if you know it, it's very hard you know what comes first but could it be that you know someone has had an insult which has caused them to be inflamed and that inflammation potentially in someone who's genetically susceptible might cause depression in them might also cause arthritis in them but someone else may have that inflammation and not be genetically susceptible or they may exhibit a different symptom when the the same that the same underlying process potentially might be the same did that make sense yeah yeah and, and i'm you know um I'm sure that that is well. I'm sure that's conceivable. Yeah. It sounds quite plausible to me that there are going to be individual differences in how people respond to pretty much everything. But certainly, inflammation is going to have different effects in different people. I mean, I said 25% of people with arthritis um, have depression, but yeah. 75% don't. Yeah. So you know, right there, you've got some evidence that there are differences in how people respond to these. Uh, inflammatory shocks, you might say, to the system. And not everybody's going to be equally susceptible. And there could well be genetic reasons for that. But going back to the sort of more philosophical point you're making, I mean, uh, uh, the word I, the word I've used a lot in the book is not actually reductionist, but dualist. I mean, I think that's where yeah. Western medicine really, uh, you know, could usefully take a fresh look at some of its kind of underlying assumptions. You know, we are I was certainly trained in, um, you know, in the in the view that the body and the mind were completely different. You yeah. know, they're quite you know poles apart, really. Di completely different kinds of thing. Um, and of course, you know that that dualist way of thinking, the idea that the body and the mind are, are, are split apart. You see that in so many aspects of, you know, current Western medicine. You know mental health services and acute medical services are provided by completely different organizations. Yeah. Psychiatrists and physicians, GPs, have completely different training tracks. Um, the the patients that see mainly mental health services will typically have not very much attention paid to the medical symptoms they yeah. have. The patients that attend main, mainly medical services will not have very much attention paid to the psychological symptoms they have. I call it medical apartheid, where we, we've sort of forced a separation uh, in the way that we think about the body and the mind, which I think is to the disadvantage of many patients who have both physical and mental symptoms. And I, you know, I think one implication of the book and the science that it describes is that maybe the time is right to rethink a little bit, you know, that separation, and maybe we we could do a better job for many patients if we reconfigured existing services so that, you know, somebody like Mrs. P, who I mentioned, the patient with arthritis, in that arthritis clinic, there's a clinical psychologist, for example. Yeah. Or there's somebody, you know, it's understood when she goes to see her arthritis uh, team that psychological symptoms could be part of, of, of what needs attending yeah. to. Uh, likewise, you know, in... In, if you think about serious mental illness, so-called, one, one of the most shocking statistics, I think, 
at the moment is that you know somebody with a diagnosis of major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, so-called serious mental illness, their life expectancy is about 10 or 15 years less than it should be. You know, so roughly speaking, serious mental illness is about as lethal as cancer on average. Wow. Yeah. But if you've got a serious mental illness and you go to see a psychiatrist, you'll be lucky if they take a blood test or an ECG or they think about your medical condition at all. So I think this, again, apartheid is a strong word, but I think it's kind of I think there's merit in actually. I think that's a good uh, term because... Yeah. I agree. One of the things I've been talking about in the media for the last years is, is that, you know, we really have made these things very separate. You know, you have to choose almost which camp you belong to. Uh, are you in the, you know, if you've got a mental health problem or a physical health problem, you sort of got to choose and then you go down yeah. that path. And, and really, you know, the body is connected. So it, yes. does, it kind of, I don't know really what happened to us at medical school because it's kind of quite intuitive when you think about it. It yes. sort of makes sense, doesn't it? Of yes. course, one part of the body would affect another. But yes. yeah, I think somewhere we've, we've slightly got off track and I think hopefully this book will help bring yes. people back to more integrated care. Yes. Um, one thing you do say towards the end of the book when you, you touch on this right at the start, which is you know, there can be no talk of panaceas. Depression is not just one thing. And, and I really I really like that because, yes, the book's about depression. I would almost sort of expand it out to other chronic diseases where we're very used to having one modality of treatment. You know, we get make the diagnosis, which is, you know, what we get trained to do a lot is, you know, first of all, let's make that diagnosis. And then there's a sort of treatment protocol. Yeah. And... The more science I read, the, the 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 longer I have been in clinical practice, nearly twenty years now. I, you know, I, that label, that disease symptom that they've come in with, can actually have many different causes, mm-hmm. and actually the same disease mm-hmm. might require a different treatment depending on who that patient is. Mm-hmm. Which again sounds relatively obvious, but I, I do think that it's not really the way that we practice medicine for a few years. It's it's become very. Um, I don't think we've quite recognised how much individuality there is. Mm. And, and I guess you're making that case in depression, mm-hmm. but that depression could be multifactorial. Mm. And there's going to be multiple factors. And in different patients, different factors are going to be more relevant. Is that yeah. fair to say? Yes, it is. And I mean, you know, I think, I think if you look at um, some areas of medicine, uh, this process that you're talking about of trying to sort of fine-tune the diagnosis a little bit more precisely and get away from the big sort of umbrella terms is further advanced. So, for mm. example, you know, again, going back to when I was at medical school, somebody came in with a lump in their breast. It was enough to say they got breast cancer. Mm. Uh, and there wasn't really much, you know, refinement of that diagnosis. And now, of course, in the treatment of breast cancer, actually there's tremendous refinement. People take a biopsy of the tumour, they'll look in detail at the at the complexion of the tumour, the expression of different genes, and some of the most effective new treatments for breast cancer are not going to be panaceas. They're going to work extremely well for people that have a tumour and a, a genetic profile that predicts response to a particular treatment. Same story with some of the the, the varieties of leukaemia out there the new treatments that are really making a difference in in cancer, I, I don't think are going to be generally, you know, for everybody with 
breast cancer, everybody with leukemia, they are going to be a bit more stratified, a bit more personalized. Now, psychiatry is behind the curve. If you if you if you think about where medicine as a whole is going, you know, I would say oncology, immunology, are kind of close to the the front, close to the the cutting edge. Psychiatry is a bit at the back of the queue at the moment. And in one one respect in which I think psychiatry needs to catch up is, you know, we we need to be doing more to understand the causes of depression, psychosis, um, addiction. You know, some of the, you know, you think about all the diagnoses that are common in psychiatric practice. They're all those kind of big umbrella terms. Yeah. And we don't have very much refinement in, in how we think about the causes. One of the, you know, practical uh, attractions of, 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 of thinking about how the immune system might contribute to depression is that the immune system is relatively very accessible you know, to investigation. It's, you can take a blood test, you can take 20 mils of blood, and you can learn an enormous amount Absolutely. about the immune system from that relatively simple blood test. And as I mentioned already, you know, in research studies, people have shown that inflammatory proteins in the blood are on average associated with depression. You know, I would like to think that over the next five, ten years or so, we'll be able to build on that. We'll be able perhaps to develop our understanding to the point where somebody comes to see you in your clinic. Uh, there's a particular test that you could run as their doctor to see whether their depression is likely to be linked to a particular uh, inflammatory signal. Well, and that, in turn, might predict a good response to a particular anti-inflammatory treatment. Yeah, well, there was that study, wasn't there, from King's College London in 2006, I think 2016, yeah. um, where they they demonstrated that, I can't remember what they measured actually now, I think it was a compliment, but they basically measured levels of inflammation yeah. in this cohort of depressive patients. And I think with almost 100% certainty, they could predict who would respond to an SSRI and who wouldn't. And I think it was something like if you if you reach a certain cutoff, a certain level of inflammation, those patients were not going to respond to SSRIs, to these, you know, to for, for people listening, you know, to those uh, common antidepressants that, that doctors prescribe, such as Prozac or fluoxetine, um, you know, these, these kind of things. And it was really quite striking because I think even in primary care as a GP, you know, we see lots of mental health problems. Yeah. And, you know, I remember early on in my career, I you would see some patients who responded pretty well, but some mm -hmm. patients really just didn't seem to respond. And it's incredibly, certainly, of course, it's frustrating primarily for the patients. As a doctor, it's incredibly soul-destroying because you want to be able to help your patient who's come in to seek help, yet sometimes you found your treatment options were quite limited. Is that something you've also seen in your career as a, as a consultant psychiatrist? Yeah, definitely. And, you know, the, the kind of, you know, as you say, most people with depression in the first instance, they won't see a psychiatrist, they'll see a general practitioner. And general practitioners will offer treatment with SSRIs or, you know, perhaps a referral for a course of cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's only when those first line, first line options fail, typically, that patients are going to get referred on to secondary. So you're left with an even tougher job. <laughs> yeah, so the people we see in, you know, psychiatric practice, by definition, tend to be um, people who have not responded quickly course, to yeah. the easy treatment options. So, yeah, this is an absolute... Has that been a frustrating thing as a, as a clinician, as a, well, as a doctor? Has that frustrated you in your career? 
frustrated you in the sense that obviously as doctors we like to help our patients and we yeah. like them to get better you yeah. know yes for them but it also feels good for us if yes. we can help our patients get yes. better have you you know i'm saying this because i've spoken to a few psychiatrists not with your level of experience having said that and some of them do express to me a degree of frustration with uh when the therapies are limited in terms of what else they can do for their patients and i'm just interested is that is that something that you've come across in your career um yes i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't say it's i don't know it to me, it's not really a fr so much a frustration, it, it, but I think it does contribute to motivation to try and make things a bit different in the future. And I think that's probably why I've, you know, gone long in my career on the research side of things. Um, you know, I think if you're, I think if you're a young doctor coming into psychiatry, um, it helps if you are prepared to think about the sort of prospects for changing the field in the long mm. term because I think it's pretty clear that psychiatrists and other mental health practitioners of course they do make a positive difference you know it's not all doom and gloom no, sure. but you can't help feeling we could do a better job I mean you know I, a thought experiment I often run in my mind is you know 100 years time are people going to be looking back at mental health services in the UK in 2018 and thinking well you know they might not have got a lot of things straight, but boy, oh boy, they really knew what they're doing with the treatment of depression. Of course, I don't think that's going to happen. I think in 100 years' time, people will difference. probably be looking back and they'll be thinking, oh, that was pretty rudimentary what they were doing back then. So for me, the, the, the challenge of you know, people with depression who don't respond to the, 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 the first-line treatment options, that has been a powerful sort of to me, motivation to do research and try and, uh, and, try and find different yeah. ways forward rather than it hasn't really, for me, surfaced in a sort of kind of clinical frustration, but it's been more of a sort of research drive. Yeah. No, no I understand that. Yeah. You, you obviously mentioned in the book about inflammation and yeah. how um, inflammation may be driving certain cases of depression. Yeah. And you also mentioned social stress. Yeah. And... I wonder if you could just elaborate on the relationship there between social stress, inflammation, and depression. Yes. So I think this is fascinating, fascinating area. And um, one of the things I like about it, before I sort of explain, well, before I answer your question directly, I mean, I think one of the things I like about the stress being part of the story is that uh, I think it helps us again think about um, mental health and depression, particularly in a slightly more integrated way. You know, the men the field of mental health can get a little bit split. It can get a little bit um, uh, internally divided. And there'll be okay. people that think, you know, it's all in the mind. People think it's all in the brain, you know, and those sometimes can be, you know, um, competing uh, camps, uh, almost sort of ideologically divided. But what we are beginning to see is that stress and stress could mean anything really from the stress of public speaking which is, you know, a, an acute stress that can affect anybody to, um, you know, the more chronic stresses, for example, of looking after an elderly relative, you know, being a carer for somebody with a, a chronic disease is an extremely stressful role to play. Um, some of the more, you know, extreme stresses, divorce, losing employment, all of these factors uh, come under the general heading of stress. And what we are beginning to understand is that 
one of the ways that stress works on the body is it stimulates an immune reaction, yeah. an inflammatory reaction. And, you know, we didn't really know that, or I, I certainly didn't know that, you know, five or ten years ago. Um, and there's pretty good evidence emerging in the scientific literature to support it. But actually, if you think about it intuitively, it's not that surprising right. once your mind has been open to it. Because the immune system, what is it there for? It's there to keep us alive in a hostile world. And we know the immune system reacts to physical stresses like an infection or a trauma. But why is it so surprising that it might also react to social stresses? Um, and some of those social stresses, particularly in childhood, you know, if you think yes. about the stress of losing your mother or your father in infancy, that is a very severe threat to your survival as a, as a, a young child. And, you know, once you allow the thought to enter your mind, it seems quite intuitive that part of the way that a, a child's going to survive that kind of extreme social stress is, is, is through uh, an immune or an inflammatory reaction. So that is emerging as, a, I think, a very, very interesting area of research. Um, it's particularly interesting in depression because if you think about what, what, are the, what are the big things that we know cause depression, stress is right at the top of the Absolutely. list. Absolutely. Yeah, it's huge. There's no getting around that. Stress is probably the single biggest risk factor for depression that we know about. What we haven't, I don't think, known about so clearly is how or why stress causes depression. So to me, the idea that stress uh, induces an inflammatory response, which is, you know, might in, under some circumstances be protective and advantageous, but in some individuals can nevertheless cause changes in the brain which lead to depressive behaviours. I think that's a very interesting line to follow. I'm particularly interested in the idea that very early childhood stresses could kind of induce an immune memory, if I can put mm, it that way. Absolutely. You know, because again, going back to, you know, what we know about psychiatry have done for a long time, you know, if you've if you've been exposed to abuse, adversity as a child, that is a major risk factor for depression emerging in adult life. But we again we don't have the mechanisms. Really had a, yeah, yeah. We haven't really tricky. had a clear understanding of the mechanism. But you know it, we know the immune system's got a terrific memory. You know, if you're really if you're exposed to a physical stress like infection as a child, your immune system will have a memory of that into adult life. Is it conceivable that if you're exposed to childhood abuse, your immune system carries a memory of that which may predispose you to react to other stresses in adult life in a way in a way that makes you more likely likely to become depressed? It's you quite know, it's quite plausible to me, and you know I think it is plausible. The research on on ACEs yeah. and, and adverse childhood experiences yeah. and their impact on your likelihood of autoimmune disease later on in life right. or depression, yeah. it all starts to fit together. Potentially, this could yes. be the the unifying idea. Potentially, that it's yeah. inflammation, yeah. Um, which I guess you know people have been saying. You know, there's there's talk of this for a few years, and it, of course we'd like to see more and more robust research so we can understand some of those mechanisms. Yeah. Um, I, I've just spent uh, a few months holed away in a, in a room trying to write. I've just completed a, a book on stress called The Stress Solution, that comes out um, just after Christmas this year. And in the introduction, I think I. I, I try and look through this through an evolutionary lens and so go, you know, back in our caveman days, you can see the, you know, this whole idea of sickness behavior where a 
caveman might have got unwell with an infection and they would feel they'd they'd retreat to the back of the cave they'd be low they're feeling low they don't want to go and mingle with people they don't want bright lights they just want to they're, they're feeling tired lack of motivation and these are sort of the symptoms that we tick off yeah for depression in clinical practice. And you can see how those symptoms of inflammation, you know, if you have an infection, your body, uh, your immune system will get ramped up and your body will become inflamed as a way of trying to fight that infection. And as a result of that, you will have certain behaviours which will probably help you rest, you know, stay away from the outside world and recover from your infection. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about this and thinking, well, that's sort of what's happening (laughs) In the modern world, with the, maybe maybe with chronic stress, um, maybe a mechanism which is helpful in the short term becomes unhelpful in the long term, um, and, and I found that really interesting. Yes, uh, it, well, it is very interesting. I hope you've. I hope you. I'm sure your book said something about immune mechanisms. I do. That's uh, good. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Immune system. So I, when I was at medical school, I did a uh, I did a BSc honors degree in immunology. Right. Okay. Um, back in Edinburgh, and um, well, I started medical school in 1995, and you know, I did the honors degree. I really enjoyed immunology, and then I, you know, got back to medicine and started practicing without a thought of the immune system for years. Yes. And it was about six years ago, I think, when I really started to re-study the immune system and the microbiome. I really became obsessed, reading a lot of science and papers on it. I thought, wow, immunology that I learned Mm. in 1998 Mm. is highly relevant now. And I think about immunology all the time with my patients now, which I find incredibly exciting. Mm. Um, Because I think the immune system, you're right, uh, what is it there? It's fundamentally there to protect us. And a lot of these illnesses that we're now seeing, there is in some way a dysfunction of the immune system. And so maybe even skin conditions like eczema and psoriasis are immune system, there is immune system dysfunction, which is why for those severe um, treatment resistant cases, they go to these, you know, immunosuppressant drugs. Mm-hmm. And so you think, well, hold on, the immune system is playing a role in multiple chronic diseases, yet we don't really think about it as doctors. Yeah. And I think that's going to change, actually. I think your book's going to really help mm. drive some of that change, particularly in psychiatry. Well, I had a very similar experience in medical school. I, you know, we, we learned a bit about the immune system. And at the time, This is I'm, I'm a bit older than you, so this is kind of like, you know, early 1980s, right? Immune disorders were kind of there weren't very many of them and there were things like they, arthritis was one of them the systemic lupus erythematosus is another one there were a, a cluster of them they all had rather ungainly names and they were difficult to get a grip on and it didn't it seemed to me like a backwater actually immunology in medicine didn't seem that important no. um then i went into psychiatry i didn't went neuroscience i did a lot of neuroimaging research I didn't really pick up a immunology textbook again until about 2012, 2013. <laughs> yeah. And I was absolutely dazzled by what had happened in the intervening period and how fast and far immunology had advanced and how much more detailed you know, our understanding of the, the basic science of the immune system had become. And the other thing that I think you're touching on is our awareness that actually you know, this isn't just important for a few obscure diseases like SLE or rheumatoid arthritis. This is, you know, the immune system has got a part to play in, in and I would venture to say almost every disease is going to have an immune or inflammatory component to it. Um, So immunology is moving from, you know, where I first sort of became acquainted with it. It was sort of slightly sort of 
um, nerdish sort of enclave of, of specialist medicine, I think it's going to move centre stage. I think I, a lot. I, absolutely. I think a lot of medicine is going to turn out to be, you know, immune based, and a lot of therapeutics. If you look at where the new drugs are coming yeah. across a range of different areas, and 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 they, the drugs that are under development, a lot of them are focused on on immune mechanisms or immune targets, even if the disease in question is not one that you know, we conventionally thought was inflammatory. I mean, yeah. you know, heart disease. To take one example, yeah. Well, we we now know that yeah. you know chronic inflammation may be one of the root causes of yeah. cardiovascular disease yeah. and potentially right. stroke. Well, not potentially in a stroke yeah. as well. And it's and this is all the immune system. Yeah. Where does where does inflammation come from? It comes from the immune system. Yeah. There, there was actually, I think it was in I think the journal was called BMC mm-hmm. in 2013. I think it was. It was from Australia. This editorial. I think it was called. So depression is an inflammatory disease. So where does the inflammation come from? Yeah. Right. Which I found that I found that a really good read actually, and um, I think in the in the conclusion or the abstract, not the abstract, the the sort of discussion at the end of that paper, I think the the authors started to speculate on potential therapies that could come up to help with depression and reducing inflammation. Mm-hmm. But they also mentioned a few lifestyle factors yep. to say that some of these lifestyle factors uh, can modify inflammation levels and potentially might be helpful in treating inflammatory conditions, including depression. And so I'd love to, you know, a lot of the listeners of my podcast um, are really looking for inspiration on, you know, nutrition and lifestyle and how, the, how what can they do in their own lives mm-hmm. that's going to help improve their health and potentially help their mood. And I know we don't have all the science in yet to, to say that, but I know we've spoken a little bit about stress and how stress can cause inflammation. And I think, you know, generally trying to reduce stress levels, yeah. a lot easier said than done. Yes can certainly be helpful there's a lot of good evidence now on physical activity and how beneficial it can be for our mental health and i wonder what you think to the whole idea that you know exercise and and increasing physical activity can be anti-inflammatory so i wonder could some of the mechanisms for how exercise helps depression and mental health problems do you think some of that could be mediated by its impacts on depression uh, yeah, I think that's quite plausible. I mean, you know, so I think it's perhaps the easiest place to start is obesity. You know, we know obesity is a, a pro-inflammatory disorder. Uh, actually, fat fat tissue in the body is packed full of inflammatory cells. Absolutely. Another thing I didn't, I wasn't taught at medical school, but it's true. Yeah, it so is true. So you put on a pound of fat, you're you're actually increasing the the kind of volume of inflammatory cells you have in the in the in the body and people with you know higher body mass index they very predictably have higher levels of inflammation in the blood and we know obesity is associated with depression so in answer to the question where does the inflammation come from that might cause depression obesity could be part of the answer for some people now you know exercise might help with that diet might help with that but we know it's not always easy to lose weight mm-hmm. you know most people who are overweight or obese, you know, might want to lose weight, and it's not always that easy to do. No, sure. But I think there are lifestyle adjustments that, you know, one could try that would, you know, perhaps improve obesity and reduce the inflammatory uh, risks that come with that. I, I've been interested also in, you know, there's a bit of research out there looking at sort of psychological interventions. I mean, you mentioned Absolutely. stress isn't easy to fix, and that's certainly true. But of course, there are, you know, 
there's mindfulness there are meditational practices that are that you know a lot of people use yoga as a stress management tool and it's interesting to me to begin you can begin to see that some people are looking at how that works and what's the science behind it and 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 you know there are a couple of small scale studies out there showing that if you practice for example tai chi or um uh, meditation that can have an effect on the immune system too. I think I, when researching for my book on stress, I think I found a randomized controlled trial. Just trying to remember now, I think it was six weeks of yoga mm-hmm. and its impacts on depression. Yep. And it was, you know, I think it was quite a small study, yep. but it was a randomized controlled trial yep. nonetheless. And I thought, well, this is pretty interesting yes. that yoga might be a, yes. um, you know, I, I think the science is emerging yes. on what else people can do, yes. uh, which, which is incredible. Yes. You know, we do, I know it's, you know, it's great if yoga works for you. From a scientific point of view, I would want to understand how it how? works, you know. And I think I think for, you know, medicine to embrace some of these kind of quote-unquote alternative approaches, the mechanism is quite important. Sure. You know, if we, if we were a little bit more confident how yoga worked or how meditation worked or how exactly a dietary change might impact on the microbiome, make the gut less inflamed... You know, if we could understand the, some of the kind of mechanistic details of these interventions a bit more, I think that would accelerate their adoption by mainstream yeah. medicine and get us into a slightly more kind of holistic way of... of I think that's a great point. Treatment. I mean, because a lot of listeners to this podcast will wonder why some of these things aren't being adopted more by mainstream medical practitioners. And I think you've really hit the nail on the head there, which is, I think maybe the conventional medical profession want to see a bit more in terms of mechanisms. Yes. So before they start openly recommending these i guess the flip side to that is that you know doing yoga or trying to work on stress management or meditation comes with very little downside (laughs) and you know whereas even an ssri for example will have um you know ssris just you know make sure i'm not using too much medical jargon you know these antidepressants that we we often use as first line uh drug therapy and depression um you know, even in our BNF, our British National Formulary, you know, in the lists of side effects, it will say an increased risk of suicide, mm. you know. And so I think starting to look at that risk-benefit ratio and, yeah. yes, we want more evidence, but also I think sometimes maybe in medicine we need to be a bit quicker to adopt a bit of common sense sometimes to say, well, I don't think there's going to be any downside here. And this there's some, some science that su- suggests that this may be helpful. And it may also be that we have to do multiple therapies in one go. It may not be that, it may be that yoga in isolation is not enough, but maybe yoga, stress management, exercise, and maybe some form of therapy to help the immune system, maybe together might, you know, bring that patient away from symptoms and, and make them better, you know, if that makes sense. Because if, if we're saying that there's no panaceas and that, that it's multifactorial, but maybe we need to address multiple factors in each patient. And I know just before we came on air, I was chatting to you about that study from um, just say, well, maybe a year and a half ago now. I think it's called the SMILES trial, S-M-I-L-E-S. Um, and guys, I will link to everything that uh, Professor Bullion and I have spoken about. We'll link to in the show notes for this episode, which will be uh, drchatty.com forward slash inflamed mind. So um, any of the papers that Edward's discussed, I think we'll try and get links to all of those things and put them there so you can actually you know, continue your learning once this, once this podcast is over. But the SMILES trial was brilliant because they had 67 people. It was done in Australia by, I think, Professor Felice Jacker. 
and she had patients who were already diagnosed with either moderate or severe depression. They were already on therapies, but then they were split into two groups. One group was put on a modified Mediterranean diet with dietitian support for 12 weeks, and the other group, the control group, had some form of social support. And there was a statistically significant remission rate at the end of 12 weeks. And, you know, 67 is a small amount of patients. I understand that. And, and I think she recognised that. And she dis- she said that in her discussion. But I found that I thought was the first randomised control trial I had seen that showed, you know, a significant improvement in patients with depression. And I wonder what your thoughts are on diet and depression. So it's interesting because when the book came out, I got a lot of... You know, a lot of people wrote to me, contacted me, and you know that that was a very common question people had. It was about diet, and I didn't really touch on it much in the book. I suppose the way I think about it is, could it could diet have an effect on the immune system, which makes people less depressed? And in principle, I'd say the answer to that is yes, because diet is going to change the microbiome. That is the you know the gazillions of bacteria that we've got living in our gut. Uh, you know their their constitution, the type of bacteria that we have, is to some extent sensitive to diet. And you know if you change the the kind of bacteria that are swilling about in very close proximity to your gut, that could have an effect on the immune system. The immune system is lines the walls of the gut very densely. It's a major you know the gut is a major kind of point of vulnerability in the body's defences. So the immune system is packed in there quite tight. Change the diet, change the microbiome, you're changing, you could change the inflammatory response. That could have an effect on mood. I can see all of that quite plausibly. Yeah. Um, you just want to see a bit more research. Yeah. And it does get more complicated, you know, because the microbiome is another very, very complicated thing. Sure. <laughs> so you've suddenly got three or four very complicated things interacting with each other. You've got the microbiome, you've got the immune system, <laughs> which we've just talked about the incredible dazzling, complexity dazzling, dazzlingly complex you've got the the brain you know and then you've got the mind uh, four rather big and complex things which are kind of interacting in some way uh we think so it's going to be you know it's going to be tricky to unpick that yeah. but is it worth trying yes i think it's you know i think plausibly you can imagine how there could be a connection and it would be very interesting to understand these things a bit more I think uh, understanding, yeah, I think understanding the mechanisms would be fantastic. I can certainly tell, in, in my clinic experience, having tried to utilise some of these lifestyle therapies for a number yep. of years now, it's incredible to see the benefits. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I tend to do more than one thing at once. I tend yep. to change multiple things together. Yeah. Um, I often, uh, I, I wrote a book on on what I consider to be four, four pillars, felt four very important factors. Lifestyle factors of health that we have a pretty high degree of control over, food, movement, sleep, and also relaxation, which is the whole piece on stress. Mm-hmm. And I found that when you can, these things can be very hard to change for people, but when yeah. you can actually, um, you know, really understand the science behind these things, but also encourage your patients to help change these things, you can have quite a profound impact on multiple different conditions. And what's quite interesting is that uh, with a colleague of mine, I created a, a course called Prescribing Lifestyle Medicine. That was the first Royal College of GP accredited course on this. We ran it in January for the first time, ran it again in April. We've I think, trained almost 500 healthcare professionals this year. We had a few psychiatrists on our course, mm-hmm. which was, um, I've had some really good feedback from them saying we're, we're applying. So we taught them a lot about the immune system, the microbiome, yep. and therefore some simple practical things that they 
can do that aren't going to do any harm but may have some benefits and you know initially the, the course was we wrote the course to to appeal to gps but i think you know i was surprised with how many psychiatrists came we had a few gastroenterologists endocrinologists i think because there's a i think we're understanding what we're talking about inflammation it's it's probably not going to be exclusive to psychiatry it's going to it's going to it's going to go across the board and there are everything we do in some way impacts our immune system and i think i think we're still at a very early stage off that yes. but I, yeah. I think your book's been incredible to help people you know who is your book written for would you say well i've tried to write it so that it could be read by anybody um so it's hard to do that which isn't is it? tricky because at the same time i don't want to dumb down the science you know i think i think it's important that you know i think it's important that people are clear about you know what what we know with some certainty like you know we know i would say with beyond doubt that inflammation and depression are associated with each other and then the next question is you know well is there a causal relationship and the next question after that is well how exactly does cause you know how does it how exactly does inflammation drive depression and then there are questions about okay if you've understood the whole mechanism how can you intervene? How can you predict who's going to respond to which intervention and so on? So there's a whole there's a whole series of questions that, you know, we have to work our way through. And and what I tried to do in the book was settle that out in a way that was understandable to as many people as possible. I mean, I had a lot of feedback, obviously, on earlier versions of the book. And I have to say, you know, my the first draft I wrote, I thought I'd 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 already dumbed it down to you know uh, 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 you know uh, uh, an extraordinary degree, and I sh and I showed it to my editor at Short Books, and she said, "You're going to have to sort this out. Nobody nobody's going to be able to understand this. You, it's way too dense. You're using far too much technology." I'm writing about such a humbling experience, yeah. isn't it? You think you've got it sorted, and then your editor looks at it and goes. Yeah, but what about that? And what about that? You're like, oh, really? Well, they yeah. won't get that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she said, you know, just all these, all, you, I, I, almost without realizing it, I'd used technical jargon that, you know, is in common parlance scientifically, medically, but it just gets in the way of the story. So I've tried to, you know, in terms of the immunology, for example, there's a chapter in the book which tries to introduce the immune system to people because, you know, we're talking about it. We both... Had understand the, it had the mixed blessings yeah. of you know uh, uh, medical training <laughs> so we know something about the immune system it, but I, you know I find that if you talk to uh, people that you know aren't specialized or trained you know most people are pretty vague about the immune system yeah. where it is what it does you know so uh, it protects it me against about? getting the flu doesn't yeah, it doc something. you know that's but what the immune system does where is it exactly <laughs> yeah you know I mean if you say where's the nervous system right it's in your head where's the immune system it's everywhere and um, it's not very obvious in any of the places. It, it, you know, it's in your tonsils, it's in your gut, yeah. uh, it's in the spleen, it's in, it's in the bone marrow. You know, actually, it's everywhere. So I tried to sort of explain the immune system, and I've tried to do it using as few technical terms as possible. I, I th I've figured there were maybe six words, seven words, something like that, in the book that you might not have come across if you know you hadn't um been trained in this area. you know macrophage for example yeah uh is a is a particularly important type of inflammatory cell and i thought well i've got to call it a macrophage because if you don't if you don't use the right word you're not helping people make the the make real the connection to the science but i've tried to keep the technicalities absolutely to a minimum 
and I've and I've tried to kind of focus more on the sort of the logic, if you will, of the the science. And I've tried to use wherever I can um, stories about my own training, some of which we've talked about today, yeah. uh, and make it as far as I can accessible to people. Yeah, I think you've done. You know, I re- I really enjoy the book, and I I, th- I like the way that you've really try to build the case up make yeah. the case for what you're yeah. what you're saying which is almost a bit like a detective almost yeah. just trying to i guess in many ways that's yeah. what you have been as a detective um since i came across the book and I actually first came across it when i saw this great piece you wrote in the guardian i think in back in april when the book yeah. came out so it was a really great piece in fact i'll link to that guys in the show notes as well drchatchy.com forward slash inflame minds so you can see all these these pieces and it was just going to help you know, help you guys really understand depression a bit more and what might be causing it, whether it's for yourself, just general interest, or for a family member or friends. I think it can be incredibly uh, helpful to read. But certainly some medical professionals who I've told about the book really, really enjoyed it. And I know a lot of healthcare professionals listen to this podcast. And I, I very much encourage guys, you check out The Inflamed Mind. Um, I think it may well, you know, turn a few things on your head about what you thought about depression. And it may help you understand why some of your patients may not be responding to the therapies that you might be giving them. Mm. Um, Edward, any any final thoughts at all for, for anyone listening to this? Anything that you've seen work in practice particularly well that you'd you'd recommend or, you know, anything that you can give to the listener at all about this area? Um, well, you know, I think Watch This Space is, is you know, going to be part of it. I, the things are, I think, moving quite fast in the way that we think about the immune system in general. And I think that it could have significant impact in psychiatry. I'm desperate to see evidence of treatments that work. Um, you know, anti-inflammatory drug treatments, for example, that have a real antidepressant benefit in patients that are not responding to the uh, other options. And that, you know, my day job basically is trying to push forward that research. So oh. we are just beginning, this later this year, we're beginning a, a drug trial which will take a new anti-inflammatory drug into treatment for depression. And to get into that trial, you've got to be depressed and you've got to have a blood test that indicates that you're likely to be inflamed. Right. Now, that, that might sound kind of like motherhood and apple pie, but believe it or not, I think it's one of the very, very first drug trials of, of depression ever to use a, a blood test in that way to kind of predict who's going to respond. So one take home I'd say to people is if you're interested in participating in research, if you've got depression or you know somebody's got depression and you think that you'd like to participate and see if you can contribute to helping move things forward, we have a trial about to start later this year uh, and there's more detail on that uh, is, you know, if, on, our, on our website, which perhaps you could also link. I will to. link to definitely. What what is that website? Do you know off the top of your head, or if not, you? It's called www.neuroimmunology.org.uk. Wow. So it's a bit of a mouthful. It is, but guys, you know, don't worry about remembering that. I'll find, I'll get that link. I'll make sure it's working. And also, if there is a link to that study, potentially, yeah. I'll also put that in the show notes at drchasty.com forward slash inflame minds. Because, you know, Professor Bullymore is, you know, he's a world leading researcher. He's really at the forefront of this field. And the reality is, is that we need a whole multitude of treatments to help people with mental health problems. Depression is on the rise. As, as, as Professor Bullymore said right at the start, this. You know, there'll be no family who goes untouched by this. 
you know, arguably across the world, but certainly in the UK. Mm. And so the more understanding we've got, the more therapies that we've got at our disposal to help people, you know, the more the more good we can do, the more people we can help. So, you know, I wish you all the well with your research. I think you're doing fantastic work in helping change, you know, the, the medical profession's understanding of depression. Um, I think you, you're coming at it from a very different angle from me, which I think is fantastic and very much needed because you know, you're there as a psychiatrist in a very, um, you know, in a very traditional field of medicine, and you're really trying to, you know, bring about some change there. And you're really looking for some really robust, good quality evidence before you go and make recommendations. And I really respect that. Mm, thank I you. think I think the listeners will as well. Mm. And um, you know, I, I look forward to hearing more about it and maybe. As your research develops, maybe I can get you back on in the future. Yeah. We can talk about an update. Yeah, it be a pleasure. I really Thank enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, me too. I really appreciate the book that you've written, The Inflamed Minds, and I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. That concludes today's episode of the Feel Better, Live More podcast. I hope you found today's episode insightful and that it has changed or at the very least caused you to reevaluate the way you think about depression. Of course, depression rates are on the rise all over the world, so do please share this episode with anyone who you feel may benefit. If any of you are interested in helping Edward with his clinical trial, the link to that, as well as everything we talked about on the show today, is on the show notes page at drchatterjee.com forward slash inflamed mind. There is no question for me that depression is caused by different things in different people, and therefore, the nature of the treatment offered needs to be personalized to the individual. I have been seeing patients now for over 17 years, and I've seen that making small changes to one's lifestyle can have a huge impact on our mental health. My first book, The Four Pillar Plan, is all about helping people to make simple and accessible lifestyle change. It has literally inspired thousands of people to make lifestyle change that many had previously thought unachievable. If you don't have a copy yet, please do consider picking one up. For those of you listening in the US and Canada, it has been released over there with a different title, How to Make Disease Disappear. Stress is another big driver for mental health problems, and I have taken a deep dive into stress in my brand new book, The Stress Solution. I discuss all the places that stress lurks in the modern world, and most importantly, I give you plenty of take-home strategies to help lower your stress levels so that you can live a happier and calmer life. The Stress Solution is available to order now in both paperback as well as audiobook, which I am narrating. As always, please do let me and Edward know your thoughts on today's podcast on social media. And anything you can do to help me spread awareness of the podcast is very much appreciated. Tell your friends, your family, or simply take a screenshot right now of the podcast and share it on your social media channels. That's it for today. I hope you have a fabulous week. Make sure you have pressed subscribe and I'll be back next week with my latest conversation. Remember, you are the architect of your own health. Making lifestyle change is always worth it because when you feel better, you live more. I'll see you next time.